Welcome to today's episode, which will likely deal with some dark topics and sometimes sweary words, so listener discretion is always advised. For ad-free and bonus episodes, click in the link in the show notes for exclusive content. You can support the show at buymeacoffee.com or by giving me a rate, writing a review, or subscribing to future episodes. And with all my marketing blah 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 out of the way, on with the show. Hello and welcome to A Million Other Choices. I am your host, Kim. Today we are talking about a bunch of legal stuff, but because I need to dumb it down to my own level, I'm going to try and make it interesting. I went down this rabbit hole very unintentionally when I was researching a case, and because of that one case, I had to research a bunch of others, so now I have a few cases to tell you about, but also about all of the legal hoopla that the cases created. This is the defense of extreme intoxication. This has been a pretty hot topic in Canada since May 2022 when the law was changed to allow it as a defense, which to many of you that are not in Canada are now probably saying to yourself, like, what? You can claim that you're drunk when you're charged with rape? Yes, yeah, you can. Uh, But it's not quite that simple. And so I want to talk about a few cases around that issue to give you a better picture of how it all works and then what an absolute can of worms that has been opened because of it. The first thing we need to talk about is something that the law refers to as mens rea, which in normal speak is just the intention that you had in your mind at the time of an event, basically your mental state at the time of a crime. It's actually very complicated when it's applied to criminal law. Uh, With regards to mens rea, you're going to hear more common terminology words like willful, purposely, knowingly, that kind of thing. And those words are important to prove something like murder as opposed to manslaughter, where you will more likely hear words like negligent or recklessly. In Canada, the crime of murder has to include the minimum requirement of subjective foresight of death. So that is, you have to have known that what you were doing could and would probably lead to a person dying. Uh, And that has to be applied that any reasonable person with a rational mind would have known that it would lead to death. Not that you particularly were reasonably sure as the perpetrator, but like the average person. And the defense of extreme intoxication always comes back to this minimum standard of willful actions. And there are two different types of intent to keep in mind. There's general intent. So that is knowingly committing a criminal act. So you knew it was illegal, but you did it anyways. And specific intent is that you knew the outcome of doing it. So general intent crimes are like reckless arson, battery, assault, rape, manslaughter, and driving under the influence. An example of specific intent is first-degree murder. LegalKnowledgeBase.com tries to dumb it down a little bit more for us by stating specific intent requires that the person had a subjective desire or knowledge that their actions would bring about illegal conduct, while general intent crimes simply require that the person intended to perform the act in question. So yes, it's kind of complicated, but I'm going to try and give you an example. In 1960, Baptiste Roosevelt William George was charged with robbery and violence. On the night of February 8th, 1959, he tried to sell a fur coat to a Mr. Ergus, but the man didn't want it. So Baptiste came back to his house later 
very drunk and assaulted him and stole $22 from him. At his trial, he said that he remembered hitting someone, but nothing else. And the original trial judge acquitted him because he was so intoxicated that he couldn't form the specific intent of robbery. So that is that he knew that he was, that the hitting the man was wrong, but he was too drunk to form the intent to rob him by assaulting him. The Crown appealed that decision and rule and appeal court ruled that the assault on the man was a general intent issue and that intoxication couldn't be a applied as a defense. But the robbery was a specific intent. So he was acquitted of that. Now, I can't confess to understanding this law completely. All I know is that he was acquitted of robbery because he was deemed too drunk to have been culpable for it. Now, after all my reading and research, I've come to the conclusion that general intent is like, I, I say to myself, I'm going to take two steps forward. So I have the intention to do that. So I do it because of that. And then when I walk first, when I take those first two steps, I walk face first into a wall. Now, did I know that taking those two steps forward was going to result in me walking into a wall? Probably yes. Um, unless I was so wasted that I couldn't see the wall in front of me or didn't understand that in the time and space that was going to cause me to hit the wall. It was, it's kind of like that. So in regards to rape, it's like saying that you're too drunk to understand that it wasn't consensual, even though you meant to have sex. So when it comes to murder, in 1963, Lord Denning, who was a judge, said, if the drunken man is so drunk that he does not know what he's doing, he has a defense to any charge in which a specific intent is essential, but he is still liable to be convicted of manslaughter or unlawful wounding for which no specific intent is necessary. So basically, if you are super drunk, it's manslaughter, not murder. Now, don't worry, I'm not going to go revisit all of Canadian law history. I'm going to move forward to 1974 in the case against Alan Leary. Alan Leary was charged with rape. Now, I couldn't find any details on the case itself, just the Supreme Court of Canada decision. But it sounds like at his original trial, he claimed two different defense strategies. The first one being that it was consensual sex and the second that he was too drunk to know better. Now, he was convicted of the rape because, well, for one, he held her at knife point. Um, so no, it definitely wasn't consensual. And two, because he wasn't able to use the drunken defense because, again, rape is considered a general intent crime. This conviction was appealed because they wanted to claim that he was too drunk to know what he was doing and that general intent crimes should be able to use the drunken or the extreme intoxication defense. So out of this case came something that's known as the Leary Rule that states that when someone is found to be so intoxicated that they can't form intent, they can still be liable or inculpable for their actions because voluntarily inducing intoxication, as in you chose to drink and form the general intent to drink or take drugs, um, the fact of you inducing your own intoxication substitutes for mens rea or the intent. So in other words, intoxication becomes the intent to commit an offense. Now, I hope that that makes sense. And I hope that that's an accurate portrayal of that law. From what I understand, this only still only applies to general intent uh, crimes, specific intent crimes, you can still use it. Um, so manslaughter is general intent, murder is specific intent. Um, so it is also important to note that both the Leary and the George cases were before the Canadian Charter of Rights and Freedoms was enacted, which was in 1982. 
So now we fast forward to 1994 and the case against Henry Davenant. Good old Henry was a 73-year-old chronic alcoholic. One night he came over to his friend's house and his friend was a 65-year-old partial paraplegic who was wheelchair bound. Henry had had a number of drinks before he arrived at his friend's house, seven beers to be exact. He came with him carrying a 40-ounce bottle of brandy and they each shared a half a glass of that after which his friend got sleepy and fell asleep in her wheelchair. She woke up later around 3 a.m. to go to the bathroom only to be accosted by Henry, wheeled into her bedroom and sexually assaulted. Henry seems to have stayed up after she fell asleep and polished off the 40-ounce bottle of brandy between 6 p.m. when he had arrived and 3 a.m. when he assaulted her. He argued that he blacked out, he was in a state of automatism, so he was not acting of his own accord, and he didn't remember a darn thing until he woke up in his friend's bed with her. At his trial, he was acquitted because the trial judge had reasonable doubt that he could have reached the minimum standard of intent. So this was appealed by the Crown and the Appeal Court of Ontario applied the Leary rule that the defense of self-induced intoxication resulting in a state equal to or akin to autonomatism or insanity is not available as a defense to a general intent offences. Uh, so he was found guilty on appeal. So this went to the Supreme Court of Canada that applying this Leary rule went against the Charter of Rights and Freedoms that by denying someone their, this defense, they were denying them fundamental justice. The Supreme Court of Canada decided that by substituting the intent to commit a criminal act with the intent to become intoxicated, without proving that they intended to commit the criminal act, was against the Charter of Rights and Freedoms. And they found that voluntariness is a principle of fundamental justice, and that you shouldn't be held liable for something you didn't voluntarily choose to do. But rather than just get rid of the law altogether, they modified it um, so that the defense of extreme intoxication was still available for general intent crimes in exceptional circumstances. These exceptional circumstances were those in which an accused could prove that their state of extreme intoxication was akin to automat automatism or basically the legal definition of insanity. However, in the end, the Supreme Court of Canada ruled in regards to Henry that he would have been convicted without the defense, um, according to the original trial judge. And so the Ontario Court of Appeal was right to convict him. So his conviction stood. So this, well, not the conviction being upheld, but the whole drunken defense thing caused quite an outrage that people were now going to be going around raping and killing people and then getting away with it for being drunk. So Parliament wasted no time in creating a bill and adding Section 33 of the Criminal Code of Canada that reads, a bunch of blah, 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 legal mumbo jumbo stuff. Four, you can't claim that you were too drunk when you are accused of a general intent crime when that crime involves the interference with bodily integrity of another person. So assault, sexual assault, those kinds of things. And this was all well and good until we get to May 13th, 2022, when the Supreme Court of Canada came down with concurrent judgments in three cases of appeal all using the same defense that the inability to use extreme intoxication violated their Charter of Rights and Freedoms. David Sullivan voluntarily took an overdose of prescription meds with the intention of committing suicide. Instead, he became impaired and attacked his mother with a knife. She was very badly injured but survived. He was charged with aggravated assault with a weapon. 
Thomas Chan voluntarily took mushrooms, the magic kind, and attacked his father with a knife, killing him and then seriously injuring his father's partner. He was charged with manslaughter and aggravated assault. And then Matthew Brown was a 26-year-old student at Mount Royal University here in Calgary. He also took mushrooms at a party. He then tore off his clothes and ran naked out of the house at 3.45 a.m., broke into a professor's house and attacked her with beating her with a broom handle. She managed to lock herself in a bathroom. He then left her and broke into another house at 5 a.m. The couple in that house barricaded themselves in their bedroom. Matthew was found by police naked and laying on their bathroom floor. He was charged with assault and property damage. Assault is a general intent crime. And remember, Section 33 of the Criminal Code says that you cannot use the extreme intoxication defense when the offense involves bodily harm or bodily interference, which would include rape and killing someone. So the manslaughter charge against Thomas Chan for killing his father. When Thomas and David's case went to the Ontario Court of Appeal, that court declared that Section 33 was not valid in that province. So for two years prior to the Supreme Court of of Canada hearing those cases, Ontario was already not using that law. It was basically saying that the defense of non-mental disorder automatism is free and open to be used by defendants of all violent crimes and non-mental disorder automatism, which includes the extreme intoxication when it's self-induced. So what is all this talk about automatism? We talked about this a little bit in the Aries Starrett case. Automatism is a state of impaired consciousness rather than unconsciousness in which an individual, though capable of action, has no voluntary control over that action. And then there's two types. There's mental disorder and non-mental disorder. Mental disorder is, of course, your classic NCR defense. Paranoid schizophrenia being probably the one that most people are familiar with. And then there's non-mental disorder, and that's where the extreme intoxication and drug-induced psychosis fit in. And up until till May of 2022 was not available as a defense in violent crimes like rape and murder. Thankfully, in March 2021, when Dustin Duffy went to trial for Taylor Sean and Allen's murders, the drug-induced psychosis defense wasn't available because I'm pretty sure I think he would have tried to use it and wouldn't have pled guilty. But anyways, moving on. The Supreme Court of Canada found that not allowing the defense for all general intent crimes was a violation of the Charter. And according to their findings, it violated it in three different ways. There's voluntariness, because it allows people to be convicted of crimes that they did uh, involuntarily, and that voluntariness must attach to the offense itself and not about the consumption of intoxicants of consumption of intoxicating substances. Improper substitution, because it substitutes the consumption of substances for mens rea, whereas both the act and the intent have to be proven separately, and it also violates the intent or fault part of the act. Now, you don't have to hurt, mean to hurt someone to actually be criminally responsible. Like a drunk driver doesn't intend to kill someone, but it's considered so reckless and negligent that it satisfies the intent part of the law. By not allowing the intoxication defense, it puts a fault level on a person that doesn't meet this minimum requirement of recklessness or negligence because it isn't foreseeable. So basically, if you take a bunch of mushrooms and wash it down with whiskey, you can't foresee that something bad's going to happen, at least according to the Supreme Court of Canada. And then lastly, there are there were two objectives that they were trying to address with this, changing this law. Accountability for self-intoxicated people and 
to protect us regular folks from those self-intoxicated people. And they determined that it was basically too accountable, meaning it deliberately undermined the Charter of Rights to hold people accountable despite there being no intent. And, the, and as far as the protection of us part, that was considered to have no rational connection to what they were talking about. I will be right back after these brief messages. What's so special about Hero Bread's soft, fluffy, and delicious breads, buns, and tortillas? These ultra-low-net-carb baked goods contain zero sugar, fewer calories, and more protein than the leading brands, and are high in fiber to support gut health. Shop now at Hero.co. In the summary judgment, it says a law must have a deterrent effect to have any protective power. However, the court reasoned that a person would never actually be deterred from having a drink on the off chance that they would later enter into this autonomous state and lead them to violence. It is well known that tragically, violence also often follows the decision to get drunk since drinking lowers inhibitions and leads to behavior that one might not otherwise engage in when in total sober control. In the vast majority of cases, the decision to drink is absolutely no defense to the violence that arises. This does not deter people from drinking, so it is irrational to think that barring the defense associated with more extreme automation level of intoxication will affect people's behavior. Anyways, section 33 of the criminal code now reads, still a bunch of legal mumbo jumbo, but dumbed down to our level, if you can prove that you couldn't have foreseen the outcome of your actions by ingesting intoxicating substances, to the point of not being able to be in control of your actions, then you can use the defense to get acquitted of charges related to violence that would otherwise be general intent or by negligence. Okay, so now we come to the case that I originally was researching to bring to you today. It was a case that was heard by the Court of Queen's Bench of Manitoba on June 27th, 2022, so after this ruling. This is the murder of Trina Kayla Love Castile. Trina was born on January 21st, 1998, and other than that, I unfortunately know next to nothing about Trina in life. There is a picture of her with her obituary. She was a lovely young lady pictured with a white and pink lily in her hair, but the obit just reads that it was a private ceremony due to COVID. I only found one news article that actually even named her. All of the other articles just referred to her as a 22-year-old female found on the Matthias Colum Cremation. Um, she is, of course, named in the court documents and an actual person with a family and friends that loved her. The Matthias Colum Cremation is in Pacatawagon, Manitoba, which is about eight hours drive northwest of Winnipeg. There is a grand total of 384 houses on that reserve, and like many Indigenous communities, there is a big gap between the well-being of Indigenous and non-Indigenous people here in Canada. Indigenous people continue to live in conditions of extreme poverty in a country that is regarded as having one of the highest standards of living. On June 24, 2020, Trina attended the graduation ceremony for a few of her friends in the area, including her friend August Thunder Caribou. And this is a very small community and people come and go from get-togethers and gatherings, so it wasn't unusual that at some point in the evening Trina and August wandered off to get cigarettes or socks. It's not clear what they were going to get. 
uh, and it was fairly late at night, sometime after 10 p.m., but before 1 a.m., August had been drinking a lot that night and smoking pot as well. His dad testified that around 10 p.m., he was in the backyard of their house drinking coolers and beers. August then later attended the graduation party with his cousin Claude, and it was likely here that he met up with Trina. And at the party, he had brought a bottle of whiskey, which he was drinking straight from the bottle. It appears that Trina and August had a bit of a complicated history with each other. According to August, there was a time when him and Trina had gone off to a cabin to drink and smoke some weed and Trina had throat punched him and then he threw her out and called the police. Now, this was in the court documents, but just that he had told the story, not that it was verified as actually happening. At some point in the night, August ripped up his diploma and then Trina and August went for a walk along a trail behind uh, Belaine Drive. The next witness sighting of August is at 1 a.m. by his brother Horizon, who was working as a safety officer that night and on patrol. He noticed that he had some blood on his face and August said that he had gotten into a fight, but he didn't want to talk about it. Horizon said that he was as drunk as he'd ever seen him wobbling back and forth. So Horizon took him home, told him to stay in his room. But he didn't stay in his room and crawled out of the window and left. And at 3 a.m. he's now yelling, taking his clothes off, looking for something to hurt himself with, saying that he didn't want to be in this world anymore. Horizon and August's mom, Juliet, are trying to calm him down. Um, he's now only in his underwear and biting himself. So they call the RCMP and Constable Michael Shasky comes out to try and uh, defuse the situation and sections him under the Mental Health Act to prevent him from hurting himself. Now, they say sectioned him, but they actually just arrested him uh, for his own protection and give him a chance to sober up so that he could be assessed. So he was taken in, put in a restraint chair and checked on every hour. Uh, but he gets some sleep and by 6.10 on the 25th, he's now calm, not wanting to die anymore. So basically, he spent the night in the drunk tank and then he's good to go. At 7.55 p.m. on June 26, 2020, children playing in the area came across the body of Trina in a wooded area behind that Balane Drive. An autopsy would reveal that she had died from massive blunt head trauma and had multiple lacerations of her head, face, extensive bruising, severe facial fractures, and a puncture wound from a tree branch to her mouth. She was found nude and had been sexually assaulted. At August's initial police interview, he said that if he was to give his level of drunkenness that night a number out of 10, it would have been a 5, uh, but that he hadn't seen Trina since about three days before his graduation, and he didn't talk to her at that time. But when confronted with the fact that his earphones were found with her body, he said that it could have been him that killed her, uh, but it would have been one of his personalities that takes over when he drinks. Um, he said, there's a trail... Now that I think we were going for a walk, I guess, I don't know, to get socks, and there was a rock. That's all I remember is a rock. We went for a walk to get some cigarettes, and I guess he took over. I remember some things, and then he took over, and then I came back, seen a rock, took over, came back. The rock was bloody. She was on the ground, shirt off, and I don't think I did anything to the body. That's all I remember. But he does remember that he pushed her to the ground because there was a ledge that he pushed her off of. He grabbed a rock and then got over top of her. Then he says, the next thing I know, I came back, had bloody rock. And well, I got, I guess I got her clothes off to wipe the blood away. Now, he also remembers the sexual assault part saying, I don't know, he did it, but it wasn't me. But when asked how long it lasted, he said 18 minutes. Now, that's rather specific. 
Anyways, when the matter went to trial, he was charged with second-degree murder, which carries an automatic life sentence and parole ineligibility of a minimum of 10 years. And there wasn't really the matter of if August had been the person that had killed Trina. There was enough physical evidence of that. But what Justice James Edmund needed to decide was if August's intoxication had rose to the level of extreme enough to render his actions involuntary. They tried to do that based on a doctor that had testified that it would have been, stating, in my view, the evidence, including the admissions by the accused during the accused statement, established that he was suffering from an advanced state of intoxication during the evening and early morning hours of June 24th to 25th. The accused statement that he was a 5 out of 10 on a scale in of 10 in terms of intoxication would appear to be entirely inconsistent with the rest of the evidence regarding what he consumed and all of the other assessments of his level of intoxication. Relying upon all of the evidence, including the portions of Dr. Waldman's opinion, I accept that I am not satisfied that the Crown has proven beyond a reasonable doubt that the accused was able to form the specific intent to kill Miss Castile. Accordingly, I find the accused not guilty of second-degree murder and guilty of the included offense of manslaughter. And just like I couldn't find a darn thing about Trina in the media, I also couldn't find the outcome of this sentencing. But there is no minimum sentence for manslaughter in Canada, so there is... Now, there is only if there's a firearm used, which is a minimum of four years. Most sentences fall in the four to 15 year range. So after all of this research, I get that this change in the law doesn't mean that people in general are going to be going around claiming that they were drunk and not responsible for raping and murdering people. But it sure seems to mean that people that decide to take hallucinogens and drink themselves into a stupor are not able to be convicted of murder because it's only manslaughter. And I think that that just opens the door to a lot of plea bargains from murder down to manslaughter so that the Crown doesn't have to prove intent. Now, when this starts getting applied to rape cases, then I'm really going to be PO'd because if because they want it both ways. As a woman, the fact that I consumed excessive alcohol means I can't legally consent. But then a guy that drinks too much can't form the intent to rape. So what does that mean? That rape when there's alcohol involved just never happened? Like the guy can't intend to have non-consexual sex or the girl can't consent, so it just never happened. And yet it happens. Like all the freaking time. Frat parties, bars, nightclubs, first dates, 25th dates, in back alleys, all around, sober women, drunk women get raped. Yet we get told all the time, don't drink too much, you don't want to be that girl. When do we start telling our boys, don't drink too much, you don't want to be that guy? But I guess that's a whole nother topic of discussion. And that was, well, I don't know what this episode was. One big rant, I guess. Take it away, discuss amongst yourselves, and I'm going to be watching this law being used and how it's applied going forward, particularly in sexual assault cases. And I'm going to be back next week with a single case. And as always, thank you so much for listening.
$5,000. That's the average amount of money people in the U.S. are now spending on gas in a year. Five grand. That's crazy. If you drive, you have to download Upside, the free app that gives you cash back every time you get gas. That's right. You can earn real cash back with Upside just by buying the gas you're already buying. You can literally start earning cash back today. I use Upside every time I fill up, and I've already made around two, $300. You're putting gas in your car anyway. Why not get real cash back? If you like free money, download Upside. I'm saving the cash I earn from using Upside to help pay for a vacation later this year. Download the free Upside app now to earn cash back every time you buy gas. Use promo code GAME to get an extra 25 cents per gallon on your first tank. You can cash out anytime right to your bank, PayPal, or a gift card for Amazon and other brands. Just download the free Upside app and use promo code GAME for a 25 cents per gallon bonus on your first tank. That's code GAME for a 25 cents per gallon bonus. 